Today on Just World Podcasts. Bolton pushing the United States into a war against Iran. Hi, I'm Helena Cobbin, the president of Just World Educational. This week's podcast is a special treat for the season finale for this current season. It's also number 13 in our multi-week story backstory project, which explores Washington's current policies in the Middle East and the Middle East itself in a broader historical perspective. On this week's podcast, as we discuss the high tensions between the United States and Iran, my guest will be Ambassador Chaz W. Freeman, Jr., a very distinguished former American diplomatist who served as U.S. Ambassador to Saudi Arabia during the military operations to oust Iraq from Kuwait in 1990-1991, and later was the Assistant Secretary of Defense for International Security Affairs. Ambassador Freeman is an accomplished linguist and also an expert on China and U.S.-Chinese relations. In 1972, he was President Nixon's interpreter when Nixon made his historic first visit to meet Mao in Beijing. And a decade later, he found himself negotiating in Spanish with Fidel Castro over the withdrawal of Cuba's forces from Angola. Ambassador Freeman is also the author of a number of very informative books, The most recent of these are collections of his essays on, respectively, U.S.-Chinese relations and U.S. policies in the Middle East that were published by my company, Just World Books. Be sure to look for these volumes if you want to learn about these key aspects of U.S. diplomacy. He is a superbly well-informed analyst and an engaging, often very witty, writer. The weekly podcasts in this Story Backstory project are all linked to opinion columns written by me and published a couple of days earlier. This week's column ran May 15th on the Mondo Weiss website under the title Bolton Pushing United States to Overreach in Iran. And this broadly is the subject I'll be discussing with Ambassador Freeman in the current episode. In the column... I reviewed some of the alarming things that have happened in the past couple of weeks that represent a significant escalation of tensions between the United States and Iran. And I placed them in the context of the deterioration of relations that has been continuous ever since President Trump unilaterally pulled the United States out of the six-party denuclearization deal that President Obama and five other countries concluded with Iran in 2015. Like many other analysts, I had noted that exiting the Iran deal clearly seemed to be a project of National Security Advisor John Bolton, who has long sought complete regime change in the Islamic Republic of Iran. In the article, I also reviewed the broad network of alliances that the Iranian government has built with counterparts all across the Eastern Arab world, from Lebanon to Syria to Iraq to Yemen, and I briefly assessed the role of Israel in stoking U.S. belligerency against Iran. Then, at the end of the column, I made a comparison between Bolton and Antony Eden, 
the amphetamine-addled British Prime Minister, who in late 1956 worked with France and Israel to launch a military aggression against Egypt, with the goal of galvanising the Egyptian people to rise up and topple their feisty nationalist leader Gamal Abdel Nasser. There are many fascinating points of similarity between the two situations, though of course the analogy is not perfect. Most crucially, perhaps, John Bolton has not yet actually succeeded in triggering or launching an outright American military aggression against Iran. But I do urge you to go and read the whole of the article on Mondo Weiss, which acted as something of a jumping-off point for the interview I conducted with Ambassador Freeman that follows. Before I get into the interview with Chaz Freeman, let me make my standard disclaimer that all the opinions and analyses that I express in this project are my own personal ones, and they don't represent the views of Just World Educational or any other body. Let me remind you that you can find a lot of great resources on our website at www.justworldeducational.org. On the home page there, you'll see a button that will send you to all the content we've now produced in this story backstory project. We have also been putting some great new blog posts onto our website in the past few weeks. There's a handy tab at the top of the home page that will send you to the blog, and another that tells you how you can donate to support our work. Please consider doing so. I urge you to explore all the resources that we make available at no cost online through our website and through our lively Just World Ed accounts on Twitter and Facebook. So now, my conversation with Ambassador Chaz Freeman, which was conducted over a slightly imperfect connection for which I apologize. Chaz, I'm delighted to have you on the podcast. Great pleasure to be here. So, um, this week we're looking at what's happening in the U.S.-Iran relationship and, and the threat of escalation, um, which might be, um, feels very unpredictable. And as you know, I wrote uh, a column earlier this week pointing out some of the dimensions of this unpredictability. So um, with your expertise and from where you sit, how do you assess the consequences of a war that might break out, who knows who, who knows how, between the U.S. and Iran? Well, if there is a war, I don't think it will be inaugurated by Iran um, as a deliberate um, act of policy. Iran is very much on the defensive. Um, I don't think it's likely that the Gulf Arabs, uh, who would applaud uh, some sort of war as long as they themselves we're not um, uh, involved in it. Um, I don't think they will inaugurate a war. Um, Israel is, has been pressing a great deal for a war with Iran over many years, um, hoping to have the United States do its dirty work, as it were. Um, but um, mostly, I think the Israelis, as you pointed out in your article, uh, do this uh, to distract from other things they're doing particularly the, um, the absorption of uh, Palestinian uh, lands and um, the dispossession of Palestinians from them. Um, so if there's a war, uh, and I don't think Mr. Trump um, wants a war, 
Uh, he's just said he doesn't, and um, I think he's probably sincere about that. Uh, but there are people in his entourage who have been consistently pressing for uh, the use of force against Iran, notably John Bolton, and um, uh, now ably assisted in that role by uh, Secretary of State uh, Pompeo. So um, if there is a war, uh, it's most likely going to be uh, um, the result of either some sort of false flag operation uh, by Israel uh, or one of the people around Mr. Trump uh, providing a pretext uh, for for conflict. And um, were such a war to happen, uh, the results, of course, are entirely unpredictable, except one can say a few things. Uh, the Iranians have had decades uh, to plan against this contingency uh, because there have been strident warnings of warfare from both Israel and the United States uh, constantly repeated over decades. Uh, so the Iranians have the ability to retaliate uh, against American bases and facilities and presences in the region, either with missiles or with unconventional warfare, uh, which of course uh, uh, is uh, indistinguishable from terrorism in the mind of the target. Um, Iran may also have um, uh, taken the trouble to place um, agents, um, actors, uh, on its behalf in the American, American homeland. Um, it does not have the, the capability to strike the American homeland with conventional weapons, um, but it certainly has the ability to do so unconventionally, again, in what we would see as a, a terrorist response. If I could just interject a moment and ask, when you're talking about unconventional warfare, what kind of things are you talking about? I've seen some um, reference to the possibility of cyber warfare. Yeah, no, in, indeed. Unconventional warfare um, includes the uh, both the guerrilla action, um, the possibility of, um, of, uh, of, of suicide bombers um, from Hezbollah, for example, um, which um, pioneered that technique in response to the Israeli invasion and occupation of southern Lebanon. Um, it includes uh, cyber warfare, yes. Um, in fact, Iran was the victim of the first um, known uh, use of cyber warfare, which was Stuxnet, an attack on its uh, centrifuges, uh, uh, apparently launched by the U.S. and Israel, acting together, and that precedent has ensured that Iran itself has developed quite a formidable capability to use cyber warfare uh, against the United States, Israel, and uh, Saudi Arabia, UAE. Um, uh, unconventional warfare also includes uh, the possibility of sabotage, um, either direct, as in the case of the apparent Houthi effort to use drones to uh, knock out a pipeline in Saudi Arabia the other day, or um, on the ground through operatives um, uh, in the Shiite community or Saudi Hezbollah, which is supported by Iran. Um, Bahrain, which is the headquarters of the Fifth Fleet uh, for the United States, um, is also rife with pro-Iranian elements. They're quite capable of acting 
unconventionally, as it were, um, uh, to uh, use force against uh, against that American presence. Uh, so Iran is not without um, its ability to, to retaliate, even if it lacks conventional forces uh, or a nuclear weapon uh, that could counter uh, those things on the U.S. side or the Israeli side. So that would be, like, let's say, a, an immediate sort of two week, you know, the first two weeks of a war scenario. But um, as we both know, doing those kind of what are horribly called these days kinetic actions, which actually means, you know, active warfare, um, also comes with, with massive after effects. So, you know, you can you could knock out, as people have talked about, you know, knocking out this or that Iranian facility or striking against something in Tehran and then some retaliation. But to me, the more interesting question is, is what happens like six months or, or six years down the line in terms of a political outcome? What kind of consequences would you see in, in within that kind of a time frame? Well, um, the sort of scenario we were just talking about very likely results in a U.S. invasion of Iran, uh, which would make um, either Vietnam or Iraq uh, or Afghanistan uh, look uh, like nothing much at all. Um, Iran has also had time to prepare uh, for that, and um, and it has, has done so. Uh, so we're talking about a, a war that isn't going to end uh, immediately. And since the objective of the war uh, is essentially regime change in Iran, um, and the Iranian people have every incentive to uh, resist foreign uh, attempts at imposing a regime, um, then uh, I think uh, we're talking about a long-term situation of warfare. And that's very dangerous. Uh, you know, we should remember that uh, the uh, Trump administration, I think rather foolishly, uh, designated the Iranian Republican Guard as a terrorist force. This is the first time that a uh, the, an element of a foreign state's army has been so designated. The Iranians immediately reciprocated by designating troops under the command of the U.S. Central Commander CENTCOM as terrorists. What, what this means is that each side has declared that it considers the other's uh, soldiers uh, to be exempt from the protections of Geneva Conventions, uh, to be uh, um, subject to attack at will. Uh, and uh, this is not a good precedent. So I think uh, we, we have to be prepared if we do get into a conflict with Iran for a very, very nasty um, set of, of punches and counter punches, um, some of them probably here at home in the United States. Anyway, the basic point, I suppose, is before you start a war um, uh, or even threaten one, you should uh, ask yourself two questions. Uh, if I do this, uh, what happens then? And then what? Now, what does the other side do? And second, how do I end this? On what terms? negotiated with whom? Uh, I think the great fallacy of the theories of maximum pressure that we're now seeing at work with Iran, with Venezuela, with North Korea, um, with Cuba, um, 
is maybe a little bit with Russia is uh, now with China is the assumption that somehow or other coercion automatically leads to surrender. I know of no instance where it ever has. If you want to end a conflict, you have to reach a negotiation, negotiated outcome uh, that both sides can live with, even if they consider it um, um, less desirable than, 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 than it might be. Um, so I think we're, um, we're talking about starting a war with no clear objectives, uh, no war termination strategy, uh, and with a, an enemy that will not feel bound by uh, the rules that uh, we insist others follow, even if we don't. Um, I guess the, the war termination strategy, if there is one, is that Mariam Rajavi will ride into Tehran on a, an American tank and declare peace and democracy in our time, don't you think? Heaven help us. <laughs> she is, for those listeners uh, who are not familiar with the lady in question, the head of this uh, organization that until recently was designated a terrorist organization, the Mujahideen Al-Khalq, which um, for a while had a, a contractual relationship with John Bolton before he became the national security advisor. Um, Chaz, you talked just you you mentioned a little bit about China there, and that leads me to ask another set of questions. Well, mainly one question. So the Iran deal, the joint comprehensive plan of action that was concluded by President Obama with the Iranian government had five or six um, co-signatories and co-negotiators, three of whom were the um, European powers, uh, Britain, France and Germany. And then there was Russia and China and the EU as a body and the UN as a body. But um, of those actors, um, you would hope that the all the non-American ones would have some stake in somehow reinstating the JCPOA, the Iran deal, or in trying to, I mean, you, you've seen some some attempts by them to save it in the year since, since Trump um, left the Iran deal. But which of those actors is capable of doing anything at this point to defuse the crisis, both capable and willing? Well, there are multiple, multiple crises uh, that have to be addressed. Um, yes, it's true that the um, uh, Europeans, including the EU, uh, as an independent uh, signatory, um, uh, joined with Russia and China to uh, and the United States to conclude the so-called JCPOA. Um, that is true. More important, the United Nations Security Council endorsed it. Um, it is the subject of a Security Council resolution. The United States now finds itself in the odd position of sanctioning anyone who complies with the Security Council's resolution for which the United States itself voted. This is a frontal assault on international law, and it is deeply resented. Um, the Europeans um, understand very well that they need a relationship with Iran. They also would like to see the sanctity of contract preserved in the new world disorder we have entered. 
they don't appreciate the habit of the Trump administration uh, of undoing deals. Um, so far, they haven't done any deals, but um, they have undone a number of them, and um, uh, including the Paris Climate Accord and uh, uh, some other things. So um, uh, I think there, this is a crisis in U.S.-European relations. Um, I think the Chinese and the Russians had much lower, have had much lower expectations of the United States having experienced American unilateralism on multiple occasions over the years. The Russians uh, have limited capacity to uh, do much of anything um, against, uh, to undermine the U.S. sanctions on their own. Uh, they could uh, act in, in common with China uh, to do so. Uh, and here we are at a, mo a moment that is most uncertain and difficult to predict because the Trump administration is going all out uh, to try to trip up China's uh, progress and development and to uh, pin it to the earth, if you will. Um, you know, it's, uh, it's trying to exclude China from a role in global governance. It's trying to smash Chinese companies. It's arresting Chinese corporate executives. Um, and it is uh, embargoing sales to Chinese companies. It is engaged in a trade war, which has resulted in terrible losses for the American agricultural sector, but also the American semiconductor industry, which 60% of whose sales are to China is now going to be cut off from that, apparently. And um, uh, all of this is driving China um, to conclude that the United States considers it an outside, out, outright enemy um, and that it must, uh, it must take that into account. And uh, this is why the trade deal basically foundered, in my view. Um, the negative signals from the United States are overwhelming and positive signals almost non-existent, um, uh, other than the sycophantic flattery of Mr. Trump at summits. Uh, which is not a substitute for diplomacy, it turns out. So uh, I think the Chinese, who consider Iran an important partner um, in terms of trade, who feel an affinity with the ancient Persian culture which with, with which they've interacted for millennia, um, uh, and um, uh, who um, uh, have major investments in Iran, and who deeply resent the unilateral uh, American effort to control uh, financial flows generally and punish Chinese companies for acting in accord with UN Security Council resolutions, uh, maybe on the verge of actually doing something to undercut uh, the dollar dominance that has been the norm in global affairs for the past 70 years. Um, and in your article, you mentioned, um, I think, the decision by President Eisenhower to react to the British, uh, Israeli, and French invasion of Egypt um, uh, by uh, withdrawing support from the pound. Um, uh, financial things do matter, and, they, and um, the Chinese already have in place a rather feeble substitute for SWIFT, the clearinghouse in Belgium through which dollar transactions are um, conducted, um, they could get together with the Russians and the special vehicle that the Europeans have created to sustain trade with Iran and um, 
uh, and seriously undercut American influence and power internationally. And we don't know whether that will happen or not. Uh, they're not involved militarily in the Middle East um, and would be deeply opposed to any um, U.S. invasion of Iran. Um, uh, but they don't, they don't have the capacity to do anything military themselves. Now, they do have a financial and economic capability that is not to be dismissed as irrelevant. You described what uh, Trump did with the imposition of secondary sanctions um, against countries that, that still want to be trading with Iran under the JCPOA as a frontal assault on international law. Um, but there are also, um, as you had mentioned to me a little earlier, many serious constitutional issues here at home in the United States that are raised by the kind of warmongering that Trump and his administration are, are engaged in. Could you, could you expand on that a little bit? Sure. Um, there is a constitutional crisis in the United States over executive usurpation of congressional authority, often with the um, de facto collusion of spineless members of Congress. Um, the Constitution is a radical document only in one respect. The founding fathers entrusted the authorization for wars of choice to the legislature. This is the first time in history this had been done. Uh, Article 1, uh, Section 8, Clause 11, uh, reserves the right to authorize wars of choice exclusively to the Congress, and it was respected uh, right through uh, the mid part of the 20th century. For example, when Franklin Delano Roosevelt had to respond as commander in chief to uh, the Japanese attack at Pearl Harbor, he went to Congress for authorization to prosecute the war. I mean, he took immediate action, of course, as commander in chief, but he understood that he needed the congressional authorization to proceed. Um, Harry Truman sought no such authorization for Korea. In fact, he denied that it was a war. He said it was a police action. Um, and from there, we have gone forward with the Congress increasingly uh, delegating or defaulting on its authority uh, to, uh, to, to authorize, authorize wars. And uh, there are some people in the United States, for example, one presidential candidate, Tulsi Gabbard, who have, has uh, very forcefully condemned the uh, possibility of that the president could on his own bat uh, launch uh, a war against Iran. Uh, constitutionally, he doesn't have the authority to do that. Um, I would add that politically, he does not have the support of the American people for that. Uh, although with a sufficiently contrived incident, sort of remember the Maine or the Tonkin Gulf approach, uh, arguably he might obtain that support for a while. But we're talking about a long-term conflict here, not a, not a instantly resolvable, um, you know, uh, quick victorious war. And so I think uh, the constitutional issues are terribly important. They need to be addressed. The founding fathers knew what they were doing when they demanded deliberation over things like this rather than 
uh, decisions by tweet. Uh, and um, uh, one can only hope that the Congress will somehow find the backbone uh, to live up to its constitutional responsibilities. Uh, are you hopeful about that in terms of the Democratic-controlled uh, House of Representatives now holding some investigations, issuing sub some sub subpoenas, but nothing really in the realm of uh, foreign affairs that I can see? Well, there have been, there has been, this constitutional argument has gained currency mainly because of distress over American co-belligerents in the Emirati-Saudi war in Yemen. Um, and the, both houses of Congress actually disapproved that war. Under the Constitution, that should be enough to end it. Uh, that can't be, that, you know, should not be vetoable by the president, although he did veto it, and the Congress has not found a way to enforce it. Uh, that is, enforce their withdrawal of support for that, for that war. Uh, but, you know, we are in a period in which uh, the president is going out of his way, apparently, because he believes that an impeachment proceeding would benefit him in the 2020 election um, to provoke one. Uh, and uh, war, the war power, uh, is uh, one of the most serious, if not the most serious, uh, impeachable offense that, uh, that he could commit. So we shall see. Uh, we shall see uh, whether the Republican majority in the Senate uh, has infinite patience with uh, with a president who clearly has no loyalty to them at all is a question that has yet to be answered. Well, as you say, we shall see. Thank you very much. OK, well, I hope you can make something of all that. <laughs>